Welcome to our second session in, as you see on the screen and on the front of the notes you should have received on the way in, Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted. Now, if anybody doesn't have a set of the notes, same set that we handed out last week that we didn't finish, so we're going to continue those tonight. We're going to be on page 11, and some of you were not able to be here last week, so I will relatively quickly tell you what we covered, and then we'll continue on with page 11. But the title of this series is Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted, and we looked at what evangelism itself is. Evangelism, the word, means uh, good news. It comes from a Greek word in your New Testament, euangelion, and that's a combination of two Greek words, angel, like angel, messenger, so message or news, and then uh, the prefix you uh, means happy or good, so like eulogy or euphemism. So euangelion means good message, good news. That's why many of you have heard over the years the gospel is that, the gospel is the good news. So the gospel is the good news, and an evangelist then is one who gives the good news, and evangelism is the process of doing that. So this is evangelism for the faint-hearted. Evangelism, the process of giving the good news. But it's the process of giving the good news for the faint-hearted. So why do we, why do we say that? Because if we're honest, we will admit that often we are afraid, we're fearful to give the gospel for a number of reasons. I may be asked questions I'm not able to answer. I may be rejected, I may be ridiculed, any number of reasons that we might be fearful and hesitant to give the gospel. We saw last week that if you're that way, not if you're that way, because you're that way, since you're that way, and I'm that way, we're in good good company. That actually the Apostle Paul himself uh, was fearful. He mentions that uh, he needs prayer, we saw last week. He asked for prayer so that he would give the gospel fearlessly as he as he should. He was fearful when he was going to go into the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, so much so that the Lord himself appeared to Paul in order to buck up his courage. And he said, fear not, Paul, for I am with you. Uh, do not be silent, for because I have many people in this city. So I, the Lord, have many people who are going to respond to your message. Go and and be without be not afraid. And so evangelism, the process of giving the good news of the gospel for all of us who at times are hesitant to do that, afraid to do that. And in order for us to overcome that fear, I'm starting these first few weeks of this series by reminding us what it is that the Lord has done for us. Uh, the, the best way in my mind to overcome uh, our lack of motivation in giving the gospel, our fear in giving the gospel, is for us to remember what the gospel is and what the Lord is accomplishing through it. And so last week, we spent a good deal of time looking at an overview of what the Bible teaches about God's purpose and the fact that evangelism fits into that overall purpose. And that overall purpose is the glory of God. And so we saw last week that if you're asked what the purpose for anything is in God's world, if you say the glory of God, you'll be right. Everything that happens, everything that God allows to happen, every purpose that God has for his world, it all redounds to his glory. 
What is his glory? We saw it's the display of his character and our reaction to that, which should be praise. And so the two of those are what the Bible means when it talks about the glory of God. It's the display of who he is and then our reaction to the display of who he is in praising him. The word doxa is the Greek word for glory or praise, doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's where we get that idea. That's why it's called the doxology, because it comes from that word doxa, praise or or glory. So God's purpose in everything is to bring him glory. And evangelism, the process of giving the good news, is a major means by which that happens. Now, how so? Well, we were reminded last week that God made us in his image to reflect his character back to him. So we were made so that God can look at us and see his character. He doesn't see himself. We will never be God, but we can be like God in the way we think and talk and act. That's what the image of God is. So we were made to be mirrors that reflect him back to him. But sin has broken the mirrors. And so God is in a repair process. And he has been for millennia now. And that repair process includes and in fact requires the evangelism process of giving the good news. Because these broken mirrors are repaired by Jesus Christ, and that comes through the message that's centered on him and who he is and what he has done. So that's how evangelism, what we're doing, fits into God's overall overall purpose, to bring himself glory. That requires that these broken mirrors that were made to reflect him back to him, that is, glorify him, showing his character. Those broken mirrors have to be repaired, and the means by which that happens is evangelism. So, you're taking a class that's extremely important because it fits into God's purpose for his world and his purpose for us to be his ambassadors. Second Corinthians chapter 5, in your notes we saw last week, Second Corinthians 5, Verses 19 and 20, we are Christ's ambassadors. It's as though God is making his very appeal through us, be reconciled to God. And then goes on to talk about him who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. So you and I are to be participants in that. We are to be ambassadors for Christ, God's ambassadors giving his message, the message through which these broken mirrors are repaired and God is glorified. Everybody good? All right. So one way that I want to try to motivate us to overcome our faint-heartedness, faint-heartedness is to see where evangelism fits into what God's doing in his world. I explained that last week. I've summarized it again here. Now, in addition to that, page 11 in your notes, I want us... To be motivated to overcome our fear of evangelism by reviewing what all is involved in the good news of the gospel. It's my hope that you will become newly enthralled with all that God has done for us in the gospel so that that will motivate you to want to share it with other people, even if that means the possibility risking being rejected or ridiculed made fun of, not knowing the answer, embarrassed, all of that. So that's what we have then at the top of page 11. 
And we saw last week a definition of the gospel. Do you guys have that on the screen? That the gospel is the glorious message <clears throat> that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's our, that's our definition. Now, the gospel is this message, this good news message. And notice the elements that it involves. It involves God's grace. But God's grace has overcome the various elements of our sin. We're going to see what those are. So it's God's grace, God's grace overcoming our sin in its various manifestations. We're going to see those. Through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, down at the bottom there, you see the word deliverance. Because that word summarizes what's going on in the gospel. That people are being delivered, rescued, saved. That's why the Bible uses the term saved to refer to those who are Christians. That's why if you've been in church circles... Uh, for any length of time, you've heard that, maybe been asked that question, are you saved? Or when were you saved? Well, what that's referring to is when was the, the point in time that you experienced the deliverance, the rescue, the salvation that comes in the, in the gospel? So there's a point in time, if you're a Christian, where you believed who Jesus is and what he has done. The life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's done. Who is he? He's our Savior, the Son of God, God in the flesh. There's a point in time where you believe that. Whether you were six years old or 16 or 60, if you're a Christian, there's a point in time where that happened. And at that point in time, you were delivered. You were rescued. You were saved. And it happened at various times and under various circumstances. You were in a Sunday school class. You were in your bedroom and you, one of your parents was putting you to bed at night and as they made the habit of doing and praying with you. And you said something like, I, I want to become a Christian. Or they said to you, are you a Christian? And they gave you the gospel in simple terms, even as a child. Or you had a co-worker share the good news with you. Everybody's got their own story. I get to hear all of those stories when people come and join our church. I've heard the story of just about everybody in here. Most of you are members of our church. And I hear those stories, and they're all varied, and the circumstances are different, but they all come down to the same thing. There was a point in time where you heard the good news of who Jesus is and what he did And the Lord moved upon your heart so that you believed that and received him as your Savior, bowed before him as your Lord. There was a time when that happens. So even though we're all different, different backgrounds, different ages, everybody winds up at the same place, the foot of the cross of Jesus. And when that happened, you were delivered, rescued, saved. And all you know is, okay, that happened, I was saved. But actually there's a bunch more that was happening in that sacred moment and that was being initiated so that aspects of the gospel continue happening, continue rippling through your life and will continue to the end of your life and into eternity future. So this deliverance is something that happened 
something that's happening and something that will happen in the future, all of that. It's got a past, present, and future aspect to it. So, I want to spend some time talking about what we were delivered from, what we've been delivered to, and how that happened. So that you see the beauty of the gospel and are hopefully then motivated to overcome our faint-heartedness in order to share it. Everybody good? Page 11. So you see those elements of the definition there, God's grace and our sin. And God's grace is delivering, rescuing, saving from aspects of our sin. And there are these six aspects of what God's grace has done, is doing, and will do in our lives that are delivering us from the effects of sin. The first of those is, top of page 11, the effectual call. The effectual call. And we saw last week that the effectual call is delivering, rescuing, saving from, and then we have that, the persuasion of sin. I think we put that, yeah, on the screen for you. The persuasion of sin. And in rescuing us from that, it gives a new perspective. So the blanks there on page 11 are persuasion and perspective. The effectual call delivers from the persuasion of sin and gives us a new perspective. Now I'd like to talk a bit about then the effectual call. Some of you are familiar with a statement Jesus made when he walked the earth when he said many are called but few are chosen. That's Matthew 22:14. Matthew 22:14. Many are called but few are chosen. So, Jesus is saying that not everybody who hears the call responds. Not everybody who hears the call does it have effect upon them. It's not effective in every person who hears the call of the gospel. Many are called, but less than those many are actually saved, are actually chosen. So in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, when Jesus says many are called, but few are chosen, he's referring to what theologians call the general call of the gospel. The general call. That is, every time the good news is preached, spoken, given, read, every time that happens, there's a call to every person who reads it and hears it to respond to it. So the call is general. It goes out to anybody who can hear, anybody who can read, anytime it goes forth. There's the general call. But then some people actually respond to it positively. That is, it has effect on them. It's effective. And that's what's meant by the effectual call. Two kinds of call in the Bible. The general call, every time the gospel goes out, And there is a requirement on everybody who hears it to respond positively to it. But, of course, not everybody does that. In fact, most people don't. Jesus used the word few. Many, general call, 
few does it actually have effect on. But on those upon whom it has effect, then there is the special call of God that we call the effectual call. So Christians are referred to throughout your New Testament, are referred to as the called of God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 7. They're referred to, we're referred to that way. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. We're referred to that way. You all are familiar with Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are, what comes next? Who are called who are called according to his purpose. Now then the the next couple of verses go on to talk about the whole or, or much of the process involved in this calling. God works all things together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose. These are Christians upon whom the gospel has had effect. They didn't just hear it and walk away from it. They heard it and responded. So they're the called. But what are some of those things that some of those things that that happened? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter eight, just two verses away from that one. Romans eight twenty eight, God works all things together for good. But then the two verses later, Romans eight thirty, for those God foreknew, He also predestined, and those He predestined. He also, do you remember, he called. So, and then those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You've got a whole string of things that happen. And this whole string of things that happens, all of them happen to every one of those people. So you don't have some people in that string who are called but aren't justified. You don't have some people who are called and justified, but they won't in the future be glorified. No, those he foreknew, he also, so all of those people he foreknew also, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, justified and glorified. All five of those things happen to those people. It's called the unbroken chain of the gospel. Every last one of them happens. And it begins with going back to eternity past. He foreknew. Foreknew. Knew before. Now, you could take that, you could, you could understand that, and if you did, it would be wrong. We'll explain why in a minute. But you could take that just foreknew idea to just mean he knew ahead of time intellectually god knows everything ahead of time intellectually and so in that sense there would be nothing special about these people because the truth is he knows everybody that way right he knows everything about everybody intellectually if all foreknew means in those verses is prescience pre-knowledge pre-science prescience if all that means is then that applies to everybody But God says, no, this is a special group of people. Because these foreknown people 
are also predestined and called and justified and glorified. So what does that mean? What does foreknew mean? It doesn't mean just to know something about them beforehand. But rather, do you all remember in the King James, going all the way back to the opening chapters of the Bible, Adam and Eve have their first child. Eve conceives, and in the King James it says, and Adam knew his wife. That's what it says. That's a, it's a euphemism for them having intercourse and producing a child. This word, this word knew is used in a number of places to refer to intimate relationship with someone. The, the Lord says in Jeremiah, excuse me, in Hosea chapter one, before you were ever born, I knew you. And then goes on to define what that loving or that knowing includes. It includes loving you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. So this knowledge that God has is not just intellectual knowledge that he has of everybody, but rather this is God setting his affection upon people. So that a relationship develops out of that. That's God's foreknowing. Now, let me just stop there. Why would God do that? Why would he why did he, if you're a Christian, set his affection upon you? Why did he love you with an everlasting love? If you've got an answer for that, you haven't understood the gospel. I mean, it's like I don't deserve it. There's nothing in me. So I should say, if you have any answer other than the grace of God. And why does God do this? We saw last week in a litany of verses that I gave you that he does everything he does so that we will be to the praise of his glorious grace. God has set that grace upon you that you didn't deserve, that I didn't deserve, so that we will be to the praise of his glorious grace. So why did he do it? Not because there's anything in you. And why is he going to do it with anybody else that we evangelize and give the gospel to? Not because there's anything in them, but because God has chosen to use them as a vessel to be to the praise of his glorious grace. He foreknew. And those he foreknew, he predestined. What's that mean? Prior to you ever coming into the world, God had marked out your steps for you. God had marked out your steps in particular so that there would come a point in time. All those different points in time that I was talking about in the introduction, whether it was at your bedside with a parent, whether it was in Sunday school, whether it was a co-worker or a friend or you were reading the Bible or a gospel tract or whatever it was, God has, God has set out your steps of your life so that at a point in time you would come to hear that message and respond to it. God set all of that up for you to come in contact with somebody, come in contact with the gospel. God orchestrated every piece of that in his providence overseeing all that was going on in your life from second one. Conception, as a matter of fact. And before that, into eternity past, foreknowing. 
God predestined. Now, this is specifically applied to salvation, deliverance, hearing the gospel and responding to it. But friends, you could and should expand that to understand that all the junk that's gone on in your life, none of it ever happened by accident. And the God who has saved you and is saving you and will save you in the future, the God who is doing all that uses every last piece of it. Every last piece. And so God foreknew, and those He foreknew, He predestined your circumstances, all of that, ultimately to bring you to deliverance, a point in time. He predestined, and those He predestined, He also called. And so there was this point where you heard the gospel. Everybody who hears the gospel hears the general call of the gospel. But only the people who were foreknown and predestined have the effectual call of the gospel. That the gospel, the good news, the same message that the person next to them in that church service may have heard and one person responds and the other person doesn't. What's the difference? The guy who became a Christian is smarter. The guy who uh, became a Christian knows a good deal when he sees one. Now the difference according to the Bible is the work of God upon the heart of that person. In a special way, in an effective way. The effectual call. And so the effectual call then removes from our eyes and ears the persuasion of, of the gospel. Or the persuasion of sin, excuse me. And gives us a new perspective. And so you find in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to put some verses on the screen. The Bible describes the difference between those two guys in that church service. Who both hear the same message. One responds, the other doesn't. The Bible describes the difference this way. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to, those, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do You see, to one person, the very same message is received completely differently. And there are some people who are being saved, and for them, it is the power of God. And Paul, who wrote that, says, we preach Christ crucified. Now, notice the message of Christ crucified is the power of God to a certain group of people, those who are being saved. And the passage goes on to say that message is this. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. Let me just stop there. (laughs) Uh, How many people would that include, those two categories, Jews and Gentiles? That would be everybody. So by nature, the message of the gospel is foolishness and a stumbling block. To everybody, except, but to those whom God has called. The effectual call. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now notice this. The saved, those who are being saved that we saw on the previous screen, and those who are called are the same people. 
And the difference between those that are called is they see the gospel in a radically different way. To those not called, it's foolishness. To those in whom God has done a work, it's the power of God. The difference between those that are called by God and those who simply hear the words is that God opens the eyes and ears of those who are being saved so that they see and hear the gospel in a radically different way. And in fact, the next chapter, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Let me just stop there. You have heard that verse quoted to speak of heaven, right? What no one has seen, what no one's heard, and that's all about heaven. We haven't seen it, but one day we're going to see it. I mean, that's all true. But actually, in this context, it's not about heaven at all. It's about the fact that we would never see Christ. We would never see the cross. We would never hear the gospel in the way we have if God hadn't done the work to give it to us. That's what it's saying. No human mind would see it that way. They all see it as foolishness. They wouldn't hear it that way. Their minds would never conceive that or entertain that. But the Spirit does a work on the person so that they see and hear differently. And it has effect upon them. And to prove that, just four verses after this, here's what the Bible says. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So no eye or ear or mind understands God's message and plan unless God turns the light on and they see it for what it is. So two people hear the same message and respond differently. Why is that? Because many are called, but few are chosen. And these people are part of the few that have the effectual call. The difference is the work of God on the mind. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, remember John chapter 10, he's talking about I'm the good shepherd. And he says that. My sheep hear my voice. If you are foreknown, predestined, then when you are called, when the shepherd calls, you respond. That's what, that's what happens then. So when that happens, God's grace in the effectual call delivers us from the persuasion of sin and it gives us this new perspective. Now, we're going to continue on with, with that. But so far, you should be getting this. Salvation, rescue, deliverance is God's initiative. And as now would-be evangelists, people who are going to give the gospel, then you should learn out of this that, hey, that takes the pressure off. This should start taking the pressure off you now. Because guess what? Guess who does the work in the heart of that person? It's God. And only God. 
So now, to deliver us from our faint-heartedness, <laughs> we need to remember that it's the power of God who does this, not how slick my presentation is. Not how much I know. Not that I can win the argument. But that God is pleased to use the good news of the gospel to move on the hearts of men and women and boys and girls so that in His power, He takes them from where they were to where He's designed for them to go. He gives them new life. We're going to see that new life in the next thing on the chart in a moment. But that should be humbling to us, friends. That the only reason we are saved is but for the grace of God, so go we. It should give you some more courage because it doesn't depend on your prowess and all of that to give the gospel, but it should also have the effect of humbling us. And it should change the way we see people who are not saved. I mean, how do you, just ask yourself, how do you think about people who are not saved? It's amazing how many Christians look with disdain on people who are not saved. I'm not going to wax political, but we're in a political environment where Christian people are saying things in ways about other people made in the image of God for political reasons because they don't agree with them on policy and politics. And so they decry them and say awful things about them. And yet the truth of the matter is, but for the grace of God, so go we. So it changes the way you think about yourself. It changes the way you think about people. Now, how does God call his sheep? How does he do that? Well, it might be many months. It might be over years. There are all kinds of testimonies in here about people who are running from God. But in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the hound of heaven found you. He chased you down. So it may take years, but his sheep will respond. So here's another thing you should understand as a would-be evangelist. Not only does it not depend on you and your ability, but you also don't need to feel the need to close the deal quickly. That's something that happens in evangelism. It's like, okay, let me get through my spiel so that you can pray the prayer, so that I can say we did it. Now, it might take that first encounter and a second encounter and a fifth and a fifteenth. And, and further, it might be that you will have one or two or ten of those and God may years later use somebody else to build on that. God's calling. God does the calling. So you shouldn't feel the need to close the deal. So God in his grace takes the initiative in calling us. And then he then takes the initiative in making us fully alive spiritually. Fully alive spiritually. And that's the second thing on your chart. There's the effectual call and then there's regeneration. And regeneration delivers us from the power you see on the screen there of sin. And gives us a new heart. So you could think of effectual calling as God changing you so that you want to respond. 
And now regeneration, He changes you so that you can respond? They both happen at exactly the same moment. But God opens our eyes, opens our ears, so that we now hear the gospel in a way that we hadn't before. And He now gives us the power, the ability that we didn't have to respond to the gospel. Now, to go through that, I would like to spend the remainder of our time looking at a famous encounter that Jesus had, an evangelistic encounter that Jesus had with a guy that many of you are familiar with in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Now, for that, I would like for you to be able to look at the passage in your Bible. We have some Bibles, but we don't have enough for every one of you, I'm told. We've ordered more. So some of you have phones. Those of you who are checking scores can now do that with impunity. Because I'll think you're looking at John chapter 3. So if you have your phone available, then use your phone, okay? If you have your own Bible, that's great. If you guys will come on up, and they've got a stack, and maybe couples can share. So between phones and sharing, and so as they make their way back, just uh, let them distribute. Here's one. Let's get one up here. He didn't come up far enough. Let me get one of these guys. That's, you guys got? You're good? You got on your phone? Okay. You got on your phone, Julie? All right. And in those Bibles, it's page uh, 913, John chapter 3, 913. So the Bible records this encounter between Jesus and an ultra-religious churchgoer who was nevertheless empty inside. If there was ever a man who had his act together, it was this guy. And yet, despite his resume and his piety and even his sincerity, Jesus told him he needed to be born again. So important was this issue, Jesus introduces it abruptly, cutting through all the small talk and all the pleasantries and formalities in their conversation. In verse 3 of John 3, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus does this because everyone needs to be born again, including... This man described in verse 1. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So who is this guy Nicodemus? Well, he was in effect a religious nut. He might be called a Bible thumper today. He was a guy who took his religion seriously. He was a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who believed that they could be related to God by what they did, by their attempts to keep the letter of the law. But they went further than God's law, even. They made up their own rules as well. In Matthew 23, Jesus said this, They tie up heavy, burdensome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Something was apparently stirring within Nicodemus because he approached Jesus, verse 2 says, at night. Possibly so he would not be seen. 
In the words of one author in an excellent book, How You Can Be Sure You'll Spend Eternity with God, he says, Nicodemus had rules but did not have reality. Though he was admired as good, he did not have God. No matter how pious he was on the outside, he was rotting within. In fact, though he didn't know it, yet his religion was more of a hindrance than a help. Now this, friends, dispels the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. So one pastor has said that Nicodemus needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity. And he points out that he also needed to be born again regardless of his religious position. The passage tells us he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Some of you know that was called the Sanhedrin. It's a select group of 70 of the most notable religious leaders of the day. These men governed the religious affairs of the nation of Israel. So he needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity, in spite of his position, in spite of his knowledge. Verse 10, Jesus says, You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? In the language in which that's written in Greek, it says literally, You are the teacher of Israel. Not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, but he also had an official teaching position and was looked at with respect as the chief religious instructor in the nation. So what's that tell you guys and gals? Everyone needs to be born again. Everyone. In verse 3, Jesus says straight up, this applies to everyone. Verily, he says, I say to you, or truly I say to you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus says, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. He doesn't understand at this point, but he knows that whatever Jesus means by born again, he can't do it. (laughs) And Jesus wants him to understand that you can't do it. He's going to make very, Jesus is going to make very explicit, you can't do it. Now, why can't he do it? Why does God got to do all this stuff? Why has God got to effectually call us and foreknow and all that? Why can't we do it? What's wrong with us? Yeah, that would be the S word. You know, Joel Osteen missed a thousand times in the Bible, like a thousand times that the word sin, sinful, sinned, sinning was used, but it's actually there. It's the S word, sin. And what effect does sin have? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. You are dead in your sins. You see, the reason, the reason you can't do this is because you're dead in your, in your sins. And so Nicodemus can't do it. Nobody else can do it. So how can one be born again? Verse 5. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. We can't create our own spiritual life, Jesus says, because flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh doesn't give birth to spirit, so you can't create your own spiritual life. Our own efforts can't give us spiritual life. In fact, we see this just a a few pages back in John. If you've got a paper Bible, you can turn there, but... I'll remind you of what it says in John chapter 1 and verse 13. We're told in John 1, 13 that we can become children of God, but here's how, verse 13, children who are born not of natural descent or of human decision, 
or a husband's will, but born of God. Do you see the human decision piece there? That you're not born again by human decision? Just a, how many, don't raise your hand, but a number of you grew up as I did, going to places where people made what? Decisions. And by virtue of their decision, they were saved. Who was in control of the process? They were. They made the decision. John 1.13 says, people are not, do not become children of God by human decision or natural descent or of a husband's will, that is, a husband and a wife conceiving and bearing as the natural process, but rather they are born of God. We have to be given life from outside of ourselves, and that life comes from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who has to do it. So flesh, Jesus says, gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual life to people who are spiritually dead. Now, Jesus had said there in verse 5, that unless you're born of the water and spirit, So I don't want to get too bogged down on that, but I need to say something about it because some have tried to see baptism there, that this includes baptism. Well, baptism isn't mentioned at all. And further, if this new birth were dependent on anything you do, like baptism, then it would mean you control it and determine when it happens. But this passage is very clear that you don't control it. How do I know that? Verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Ah. Do you see that Jesus is saying you can't control the wind? And he uses a play on words when he says wind. Because the Greek word that's translated spirit, pneuma, is also in some contexts translated air, breath, wind. Here he's talking about the Spirit of God giving life, but he uses a play on words to use pneuma in the natural realm, the wind, and you can't control that. If you can't control that, you also can't control the Spirit. So if the water in verse 5 were baptism, you'd be controlling it, would you not? Because you get the Spirit when you decide to get baptized. But Jesus says that's not the way it happens. So it's not something that we do because we're dead. It's not something we can do. We don't control it. Jesus makes very clear. You've got a number of passages in Scripture that show that all of this is by the grace of God, not anything we do. Titus chapter 3, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, remember we had Ephesians 2 up there that said you're dead in your sins. A few verses later it says, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in sins. God breathes on the dead, spiritually dead person and resuscitates them, gives them life. Not because of anything they did, but because of his grace. That's why then in that same chapter, Ephesians 2, just a few verses later, famously it says it is by grace you have been Rescued, delivered, saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Notice 
Guys and gals. What's not from God? This is not from God. Even the faith is not from yourselves. It says this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. What's not from yourselves? The faith. Even the believing is not something you can do. On your own. Did you know that? Why? Because you're dead. What can dead people do? Nothing. What do they need? Life. Who gives life? The Spirit of God. They're born from above. And what's the result of that? There's no works involved so that no one may boast before God. And God gets the full glory, the full credit, the full praise. So it's not baptism. It's not any other work. Nicodemus should have known this because he was an expert in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. That's the Bible he had at the time Jesus was talking to him. New Testament hadn't been written yet. He had the Old Testament. He was the teacher in Israel. And there's a passage in your Old Testament that refers to the work of the Spirit and uses water to refer to that in in Ezekiel chapter 36. It says this, I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. So you all see that? Not us. Not you, Nicodemus, no matter who you are. It's the Spirit of God that gives you new life. Born again means that. means the giving of spiritual life. That's why we have a song that I used to sing when I was a kid. Some of you know this song has a a line in it that says, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, creating, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed Unto him against that day. But notice what it says. I know not how the Spirit moves. That's coming from John 3. I don't know how the Spirit does it. It's God the Holy Spirit. It's God the Holy Spirit who is sovereign. Who is in control. And he does it. He's pleased to use the preaching of the gospel. And only the preaching of the gospel. In order to affect that. But it's God who who does it. So for those who have never come to Christ, realize, and maybe there are some here, realize you don't control it. So respond when he moves, not when you think you're ready. This is also important for all of us who have come to Christ. If you're not living a new life, it's because you've never received new life. In other words, you may have prayed a prayer, but if your life hasn't been changed, then there's no evidence of the Spirit. And since this is the work of God, the good news is, friends, there's no one who's beyond his ability to save. There's no family member you have, no neighbor, no co-worker who's too far gone. Because the power of God does this. Most people assume, like Nicodemus did for his entire life, that our relationship with God comes by what we do, by our good works, especially our religious good works. So in verse 9, he asks, how can this be? (laughs) 
And Jesus tells them that here's how it can be. It comes by believing. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus would be lifted up, speaking of his death. And then verse 15 says that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So the new birth is received by believing in Jesus Christ. But how are you given the ability to believe? The Spirit of God breathes life into your otherwise lifeless, your lifeless soul. Now, this is the passage, uh, friends. It goes on to say in uh, verses 13 that no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has authority to tell you this. Faith in Jesus Christ begins with an understanding of the gospel, and then that's followed by a recognition of his authority. And then verse 14, just as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that's a story from the first part of your Bible where they were told in order to be healed, you look, you look at the snake that's lifted up. And now Jesus is being compared to that. And so you look and you believe. And then it's in this context that you have the most famous verse in the Bible. After all of that, for God so loved the world. The world is the cosmos. That's the Greek word. And it's the arrangement of this world that has set itself against God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But that's a summary of everything that went on with Jesus and Nicodemus. So what is regeneration? Back to our chart. Regeneration is deliverance from the power of sin giving us a new life, a new life. And the result of that, you see on the far right of the chart, top of page 11, is faith and repentance, faith and repentance. The result of being made alive is that you believe. The result of being born again is that you believe. You're not able to believe until you're given life. You're given life, and then you believe. And remember, faith and belief are the same word in your New Testament. So you could write, what does it result in? Believing and repentance. It results in believing and repentance. So let me talk about believing for a minute, for three minutes, and we'll be done. Belief faith. Uh, what does that mean? Here's a, here's a definition for you. Believing or faith is to accept as really true. To accept as really true. To believe or to have faith in Christ is to accept that it's really true. That he's who he claimed to be And he did what he did. 
on your behalf. It's to accept that as really true. Now, I want you to underscore the word really. Because I could have said, you could define that as just faith or believing is just accept as true. And then there are these facts about Jesus. And you're like, okay, those are true and that's that. I believe, now I've been delivered, now I'm saved, now I'm going to heaven. But I say it that way for a good biblical reason. Faith or believing is to accept something, to accept a proposition as being really true. And here's why. There's a kind of believing, there's a kind of faith that doesn't save anybody. Am I right about that? According to the Bible? You all remember in James chapter 2? Faith without what? And James asks the question, can such faith, can that kind of faith, can that kind of believing save someone? And the answer is no. So what kind of faith? You're saved by faith. You're saved by believing. God gives you the ability to do that. But the people that he gives that ability to do, to believe, believe really in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done so that it makes a difference in their lives. That's why I add the word really. It's to accept these claims about Jesus and what he's done as being really, honestly true. Because, friends, if that's the case, it cannot but change your life if you really believe it. If you really believe that God became a man and sacrificed himself on a cross for you, you cannot but respond with your life given in sacrifice to him. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living what? If you really believe Jesus is who he said he is, he's God, then he's the Lord, he's your master, he tells you what to do. So to believe, to have faith, is to accept these things as being really true. They make a difference in your life. So it results in, right side of the page, believing, faith, and repentance. Repentance means a change of mind. It's literally what the Greek word means, metanoia, change of mind. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. I change, my mind has been changed so that I believe, really believe who Jesus is and what he did. You can't have faith without repentance. You can't have repentance without faith. They go hand in hand. And when you believe, really believe who Jesus is and what he did, now you go in a new direction. All right, we're going to quit. But all of this is stuff now. This effectual call, this regeneration, God doing the foreknowing and the predestining and all of that. This is all stuff that God is doing. Where do you fit into any of this? Where do we actually start evangelizing anybody? Well, that faith that they have, It results in faith and repentance. 
Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that faith that God gives, he gives in connection with the presentation of the truth of the gospel. So that's where you come in. That's where I come in. We tell people the truth about themselves, about God, about Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Lord. And then God does this work upon those whom he wills to do it on. And how will you know whether he's done it? They will believe and they will repent. And if they don't believe and they don't repent, then they haven't been delivered. They haven't been rescued. They may later. They may 10 years from now. But they haven't as yet. Now, that brings us then to the point where we can start to talk more about our role in all of this as evangelists. But we're going to continue going through the beauty of the gospel, the effectual call, regeneration. And then next week we'll pick up with justification, then adoption, and then sanctification, and then glorification. One last thing, and we'll be... I'll pray. I'm not going to spend as much time on the other four. You all happy about that? I wanted to spend a ton of time on these two so that if you've never gotten this, that you will get fully. Salvation is from God. God is the one who does this. It should have an effect upon you and your humility for your salvation before God. It should have an effect upon you and your hopefully no longer faint-heartedness because God is the one who does the work. I want you to fully grasp that. We'll see these other four a little more quickly beginning next week, okay? Let's pray. Bring those sheets back with you for next week. Father, we thank you for gathering us, for the opportunity to consider these marvelous truths given to us in your word, that you, the sovereign God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, you speak life into our spiritually dead hearts. You've done that for all of us who know you at a point in time when we heard the gospel message, when we read the gospel message, and your spirit moved upon us, giving us life, and we respond by believing. And so, Lord, we are believers, and we continue to believe who you are and what you have done for us. Go with us now this week as we think about these marvelous privileges that you've bestowed upon us, not because of anything within us, but because of your grace given to us. But for the grace of God, so go we like everyone else. Help us to look through different lenses then. Help us to see people with compassion and not disdain. And help us to bring praise to you throughout the remainder of this week, Lord, for your grace given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us safety. Bring us back together this Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.